First 15 and 60 of the season. This is always an interesting one. There's so many possible directions to go on these. We'll do some gamers. We'll catch up on some early season stat trends. And let us begin with the Dallas Mavericks, who currently sit at 4-1 and one despite their loss to the Denver Nuggets as we record this late on Saturday. I guess not that late. Saturday afternoon Pacific. The Mavericks have the eighth best net rating in the NBA. We remember we use the cleaning the glass version of many of these stats. They're plus 5.4 per 100 possessions. Second in offense, 120.7. And 23rd in defense. Yeah, and I wanted to make a correction from yesterday. The in-season tournament, none of the in-season tournament qualifying games are on the second night of a back-to-back, but some of them are on the first night of a back-to-back, which actually is kind of too bad, although I just don't think it logistically would have been possible unless they're going to reduce the number of games in the regular season. But like Chicago, for example, they're flying to Denver for the second night of a back-to-back today after their in-season. So that is going to probably prevent some teams from going as hard as they might have liked to. So just a quick correction from yesterday. Let's get into the Mavericks. Yeah, we're using ESPN's BPI at this point now with the sad demise of 538. Nate Silver has said he might get those projections back up. I I like them a lot, but they project right now for... Oh, for 46 wins, which would be the four seed in the West and an 83% chance of making the playoffs. Well, here, I think we had a typo in there. That's why I, w- I had paused to actually look up what it says. Because uh, it says in here 46 and 37, which would only be possible if they won the in-season tournament. Aha. Uh-huh. So the actual projection for them is 45 and 37 mm. uh, after after their loss, which, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, would be the four seed. Now, all of these projection systems have the West in particular really mashed up in the 40s. We'll see if that ends up happening. It looks like some teams are kind of separating themselves early. But again, it's early. You, there can be injuries. The teams can lose momentum, etc. Uh, so, Nate, can yeah, I start? Yeah, can I start this with just Luka Doncic's counting stats and the basic advanced stats, like the, the top line numbers, because they're astonishing. Yeah, well, as uh, the father of a just today turned nineteen month old, I love counting. <laughs> 33.8 points, 10.4 rebounds, 9.4 assists in 38 minutes per game. And for those of you who like the advanced stats, 30 PER, 29.6, if you want to be specific, 65% true shooting on 35 usage. That's basketball references version stat. Oh, and a 43% assist percentage. So, Luca, I mean, it's surprising that, oh, that's only a 30 PER with those stats. But with the small sample Right now, you're going to see some outliers, and he is one of them, even by his lofty standards. 45% from three on 11.2 attempts per game. Right now, he's averaging 1.2 points per possession. Remember, isolations are generally less efficient. That's what he's averaging, 1.2 points per possession on 47 isos. That's 31% of his scoring attempts. So that's a crazy, you know, and he likes that step back three when you're shooting 45% from three on those really difficult attempts. That's how you get to those great numbers in ISO. And also, you know, he's really able to just get to where he wants to on the floor. He's under control and uh, they've got pretty good shooting around him as we'll get to. Uh, and then he's also 19 of 30 shooting out of pick and roll. Again, that, those self-created ISOs, pick and rolls, like the, those are usually league average well below a point per possession. Uh, Luca is like 1.1 points per possession out of pick and roll, even in, including some of the turnovers. So, I mean, there's just nothing you can do with that other than double team. Like if he's just going this well and, you know, I thought the Nuggets did a pretty decent job against him. Not like they shut him down, but they're able to outscore him, which it's going to be quite possible as we'll get to uh, for this jazz team. The other thing that I thought is pretty hilarious, Luka Doncic, just watching him, you know, like they outlet the ball to him 
And then just everyone on both teams runs past him as he just kind of jogs off the floor. Like, he, even when he has the Avengers, it's always been, as I said, a disappointment because I thought he was actually pretty good in transition at times uh, as a prospect in Europe. Yeah, Real Madrid. But, Agreed. Yeah, yeah. But he's, uh, when you're scoring that well in the half court, you don't even really need to run. And in fact, hilariously, his worst category is he's only five out of 12 in transition so it's actually better for him to slow it down and run a pick and roll or isolate uh i mean i guess he'll take the wide open layup but uh i mean he basically is like never in a dead sprint not that often on defense either uh and then their big free agent acquisition grant williams he's shooting 53 percent from three taking a ton of corner threes luca is just setting him up like crazy 7.2 per game that's aimed for 36 that's per game and and hitting that 53 percent he's only taking 1.8 two-point attempts per game so his job is basically to stand outside the arc and make three-pointers and to his credit for a guy i think he started like you know one out of 25 oh for 25 or something like that in his career as a three-point shooter he has made himself into being extremely reliable of course he had that seven of 18 in the game seven in 2022 against the bucks so he'll take him now and in contrast to the Boston Celtics, who just weren't as good of a passing team like Luca, they're going to run everything through him. They're going to space the floor and Grant. You know he's he's improved. Like he can take some sides up threes. Like he's been more aggressive from out there. Like it's it's really hard to take seven point two per game when you're just a guy who's taken wide open ones. Although Luka Doncic could come close to getting you there. Uh, so I mean that's just a massive number. Well, um, uh, and indicative of the health of their offense. In addition to the fact that uh, you know Grant is knocking them down. He is, and and just to kind of frame this a little bit differently. Grant Williams is rookie year where he played over a thousand minutes for the Celtics. So he played meaningful minutes, 25% on 3.3 per 36. But now his career averages 39% on 4.7 per 36. And Williams has done better than that each of the last two full seasons. And of course, in the short sample is doing much better than that right now. So like we're getting close to the point where it's just like, this guy can shoot. And, you know, he's not, you know, the, the it doesn't have the most versatile jumper, though I, I agree with the credit that you've given him for for making it a little bit more versatile. And Grant Williams is such a wonderful development story in these in this stage. Like he could, of course, grow from here. This is age 25 season of how you can be a positive offensive player despite being lower usage and just, you know, hit the shots that you're given that you're that are created for you. Don't make that many mistakes like he doesn't turn the ball over a crazy amount. D- and Don't get in the way. Either, yes. Right. Like just like take nothing off the table for your teammates, which uh, he's well practiced at doing. Yeah, I, I will talk about that later in the Clippers section in a different context. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that that's really impressive for Grant Williams. Uh, what have you thought of some of the other players on the rotation? Well, one more thing uh, on Grant, you know, what his career usage is like, you know, 12 percent or something like that. And, you know, we talked about how guys, unless you're a center, and even if you are in most cases, you're just not going to get paid much above, you know, I guess the equivalent of like the mid-level or maybe even below that. You know, P.J. Tucker is kind of an analog for him as well, where those, those guys just don't get more than the mid-level. Um, Grant was looking for that. He didn't get it. The Celtics didn't want to pay him that. And, you know, Celtics are looking great so far, too. But they certainly could use the guy. Uh, you know, I mean, he's starting for the Mavericks. It, like, he's better than Sam Hauser. But they, they have their financial limitations, obviously. And they probably use some of the flexibility that they retained by not resigning him to go and get Drew Holiday. But the Mavs identified him. And, like, his skill set is rare. It's useful. And when you have someone like Luka Doncic, who's going to set you up for open three-pointers, and you can make them, and you can defend reasonably well. Now, Grant's, he's no stopper, right? Like, he's not as good as Dorian 
Finney Smith, you know, he, but he still at least can like credibly guard three through five. They put him on Jokic last night. Yeah, he didn't stop Jokic, but at least, you know, he's not just like a complete loss guarding someone like that. So like he's well worth the money. And I think there's an argument that uh, at least on a good team, like he should have got paid more well, than he did now, Utah, or, or sorry. Yeah. Well, and Nate, two of the teams I was thinking about as you were going through that, that could really use someone with Grant Williams skill set who had spending power last summer. The Houston Rockets and the, I mean, depending on how you see the Brook Lopez thing, and the Detroit Pistons. Like, the Detroit Pistons have spent so much money on significantly worse players than Grant Williams, and he would he would be a part of their system. Yeah, and now, of course, Dallas also, in addition to the contract, gave up that 2030 pick swap to move Reggie Bullock for him, and, and Bullock, interestingly, has been, like, kind of mired in, in Houston. We'll see with the men Thompson out if he's going to play more now. But So I, I think, like, Grant's been exactly as advertised so far, and they've got other guys who've just been incredibly efficient as finishers uh, Derek Jones Jr. Derek Lively these guys like true shooting percentages in the high 70s right now they're shooting 41% Dallas is from three as a team so like their offense is looking like it's going to be what it needs to be you got Luca you've got Kyrie you've got efficient finishers even like Jaden Hardy hasn't even gotten into the act yet but he's been a 40% spot up three-point shooter in his career uh now interesting to, to note like Kyrie missed a couple of games it's all, all of which they won they are negative 5.4 Kyrie on plus 13.5 with him off so far and uh, that includes uh, of course uh, the minutes that he plays without Luca so we'll see if that's just a, ends up being small sample or not we're very early Kyrie only having played three games but that, that's one to kind of keep a pin in uh, particularly because you know Kyrie hasn't done that well as the sole guy uh, running offense in his career at least in terms of the team results but and their defense sucks they can't get a defensive rebound they went up against denver got completely smoked there uh but you know if they could be about where they are defensively at like a, a 115 23rd in the nba and get that top five offense like they'll be around where they need to be i, I think to kind of you know are they going to be top four in the west no i don't think so i think they're not balanced enough but i think they'll be at like the top end of the play in mix in contention for a top six seed we will now discuss the team that dispatched the mavericks in the first nba cup game and that is in the denver nuggets five and one on the season we'll be talking about the one actually in their section for right now they're sixth in net rating, plus 6.5, eighth in offense, and an impressive tenth in defense. That's something we discussed in the breakdown of their cup game against the Mavs on yesterday's show. BPI has them finishing with 50 wins in second in the West. I think they are going to be a destroyer and finish first. A 98% chance of making the playoffs. And this will be a discussion of both Denver and Minnesota. But just before we get into it, we talked about Jokic and like the ridiculous lines during some of his games. But here are his full, some of his full season things. Jokic is number one in PER, 31.5, number one in value over replacement player for uh, plus 0 0.7, 70% true shooting on 30 usage, and just absolutely, absolutely incredible as an offense player and has taken some steps forward defensively too. Yeah, I mean, that 30 usage, I think, would be a career high for him by quite a bit. Uh, and the 70% true shooting, I mean, that's about where he's been, <laughs> basically. basically. He did have a rough game, as we'll get to in that Minnesota game. But, it, you know, I have noticed that Denver has been better defensively, and it really started showing in last year's playoffs and and particularly in the finals Jokic he's not it's very rare that he's actually even like jumping and getting his chest on guys like that's how you would think someone like him could be effective as a rim protector that's kind of like what Marcus Sol did to whom he's often being compared but he just has these good hands they're so quick he's got a 7-3 wingspan and he either gets his hand on on balls 
around the basket as guys are trying to go up or he'll swipe at it enough to just kind of bother the guy and make him miss the shot now he's allowing 61 percent shooting at the rim for the season uh, that's much better than he's been in previous years uh but again you know I, I noticed this during the playoffs as well that he was bothering guys a little bit more and i chalked it up at the time to just guys not doing a good enough job finishing because Jokic's career numbers are you know annually is among the worst in terms of percentage allowed at the rim and 61 percent is still not great for a center but it's a lot better than 70 percent mm-hmm. particularly when you have other good defensive players around him and he's also third in the nba in contests uh, which is usually about what it ends up being and that was part of the theory for why he was not very valuable as a defensive player because of the fact that he's contesting so many shots but he also is you know, the percentage was so bad but you know if he's getting better there uh and his anticipation has always been pretty decent and just generally seems to be playing a little bit harder defensively as well he's i think another thing that's really helped is he just doesn't get in foul trouble as much anymore and so he just is able to play better like when he would really struggle in previous years and you saw it briefly in that lakers game was when he would be in foul trouble and then just like he he's not one of the, like amari stoudemire was like this too like guy just like can't play as a big in foul trouble and just completely backs off so uh yeah, I, I think that there's some encouraging signs early from Jokic, and you can see it in the games that we've watched as well. But uh, enough Nuggets hagiography. They lost the game. They did, and this happened to be one of those stretches. I had a window and wanted to watch Wolves Nuggets. They had a, a pretty fun playoff series last year and talked a little bit with about that with Matt Moore because um, he, you know, follows the Denver Nuggets closely. And part of his theory is that, you know, it was a weird first round series and everything else like that because the Nuggets didn't exactly sprint to the finish, but that the Wolves have a lot of bodies to defend Jokic. And this game started out incredibly well for them. Minnesota had a 9-0 run and then eventually it was a 28-21 first quarter. And it was absolutely, whether you want to, whichever way you want to phrase it, it's a defensive win for the Wolves, an offensive loss for Denver. They've been just this unbelievable offense, but they had a 92 offensive rating in the game, turned it over on 19% of their possessions. That's 15 turnovers overall and six of 33 from three, including um, Jokic, Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray shooting a combined two of 15, which is not exactly what you're you're hoping for there. A, a couple of interesting strategic elements from this game, something that I really enjoyed uh, that Chris Finch went to was that in the Jamal Murray only minutes. So they're they're basically staggering. The Nuggets are largely staggering Jokic and Murray, meaning like I, I call it a stagger plus where it's like they play together, but it's also they make sure that at least one of them is on the floor at any competitive minute. And so in those minutes, you have a little bit of a different challenge guarding Jamal Murray because he doesn't have his pick and roll partner, but he's still one hell of a basketball player. And what Chris Finch did is overwhelmingly, he defended Murray with larger players, Kyle Anderson, Jaden McDaniels, most notably among them. And so that takes away some of the power game that Jamal Murray likes to go to. I think of that as his kind of default when Jokic is not on the floor because you don't have the handoff game. And when you have that bigger guy there, Murray can't necessarily move them. And also, Jokic isn't occupying the help defender. So the drive game doesn't work nearly as well, even if Murray has a speed advantage. And so I thought that actually worked really well. And I don't know how many teams can pull that off as a template. There aren't that many teams that when Jamal, when, when it's the non-Jokic minutes can have defenders that big, that good. But I thought it really made a difference for Minnesota. Yeah, uh, Jaden McDaniels uh, got rave reviews in that game, having returned now from that calf injury. Uh, and, and he's you know has proven himself to be one of the better lockdown perimeter defenders in the league. So that 
yeah, the Wolves just have a, a lot of bodies uh, to throw at the Nuggets and just to make things a little bit more uncomfortable. I think just looking at Jokic's stat line for him to take six three-pointers in a game, particularly a regular season game, that to me kind of shows that he's not quite as comfortable. Like he, he'll he take those when he's wide open, but it's kind of just like not what he wants to do, particularly in a regular season game. And so I, I think that shows that they had kind of, as you like to say, the metronome, like they kind of were able to disrupt it a little. They were, and I thought it was telling, you know, in the competitive portion of the game, to my eyes, Anthony Edwards was the best player on the floor. And he was doing more as a scorer than as an assister in this one, in part just because of how the offense was flowing. But he he was driving well, was very successful with 7 of 12 on twos, but then also got to the line eight times. And, you know, I thought he held up fine defensively. I thought that, you know, Edwards... I possession to possession. I think that sometimes his defensive capability is a little more overstated than his defensive impact, but I thought he did a nice job in Denver. They stress out all of your different players because of all the like off ball actions and everything else to do. So I thought Edwards did a nice job there. One of the other things that amused me about the game is that Jokic does have really good hands, but there was a play where he like did that swipe down that Jokic is very, very good at and Rudy Gobert is going up and the ball goes out of bounds. And so they call it just, you know, out off of Jokic's hand. And Gobert goes completely, like, aggressive on the refs. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, they're doing that. Jokic completely hacked him. Like, it was absolutely, like, a completely missed call. And it's like, it, I, I do feel sympathy for Gobert. I've mocked his offensive limitations a whole lot. And, and he did go 0 for 7 from the field in this win. But I did feel for him in that moment, for sure. Last thing uh, on the Nuggets before we maybe transition to the Wolves uh, a bit more. You know the saying that the eye test is better than stats, but stats watch every game and the eyes don't. Been noting how, hey, you know, it seems like the Nuggets look pretty good with this new revised bench unit. And now they're staggering Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. Uh, not bad. Well, I just wanted to check that. I was pretty sure they'd be fine. I wanted to check the numbers. Murray on Jokic off so far, 118 possessions, negative 10 net rating, 102.5 offensive rating, 112 defensive rating. Mm. Uh, they The team has a free throw rate of 8.2 in those minutes, which is 0th percentile, <laughs> turning it over on 19% of their possessions. So it's not even that they're shooting incredibly poorly. They're shooting 33% for three, which is not amazing, but that's also not a great shooting group. I mean, your most commonly used lineup there is Murray, Reggie Jackson, Christian Braun, Peyton Watson, Zeke Nagy. That's not a great shooting group. Uh, I mean, that comprises 79 of the 118 possessions. And so, yeah, they're turning it over a ton. They're never getting to the line, getting a ton of offensive rebounds and not shooting particularly well, but it's not a great shooting team, you, you would think. So, yeah, let's let's keep an eye on that one. I mean, obviously, they'll, they'll intermix more starter and bench groups in the playoffs. We saw that this wasn't, I thought it would be a problem in the playoffs. It wasn't because they're able to mix in Aaron Gordon more with the, those bench groups. And, but, you know, maybe during the regular season, it will again, hold down Denver's numbers uh, in the non-Jokic minutes, Jamal Murray or no on that second group. Two other Nuggets things before we move on. One from this game, one not. Peyton Watson is averaging 1.3 blocks per game in 15.7 minutes per game. He has a block rate of, I think it's over, it's over 7%. Yeah, 7.3, which is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And every single one of them is spectacular too. Yes, they are. 
And then his backcourt center partner, often though there is a little bit of a stagger there, Zeke Naji. There was a stretch in the Wolves game where they were playing Naji next to Jokic. So then functionally, Naji is playing power forward. And Denver often d- is a little bit more aggressive with their fours defending smaller players than, than Jokic for logical reasons. And I thought that Naji did a pretty good job defending Anthony Edwards on a couple of possessions. I don't think you want him doing that all the time, but I was impressed with how Naji moved his feet. He also had a, a, a good three make that I actually want to talk about in the Wolves section. And yeah, we can, we can make transition. Do you want to give the Wolves stats? Two and two. It has been quite the roller coaster. For them, they had a huge lead in Atlanta after a great first half. Completely blew that as DeJounte Murray, who actually was the Wolves, ironically, were the team that was rumored to be in the mix for Murray. And then they don't get Murray and they end up getting Rudy Gobert instead. So Murray drops in a one and two. Then they have this great win at home against uh, the Nuggets. But after that big win, 5.8 net rating is seventh in the NBA, 21st uh, on offense and second on defense. And they're projecting for 45 wins as well, which would be the fifth seed playoff odds, 82% for ESPN's BPI. So one of my big takeaways from Wolves Nuggets was just how much better Minnesota's lineups and their, their 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 flow when they have all five of their starters because everybody has a role and a lot of them do it really really well. Conley, Edwards, McDaniel's, Towns, and Gobert. It helps when you actually need those bigs, the bodies to to battle with Jokic. But I thought McDaniel's really brought something. And then Conley, you know, he, his role can be a little malleable because you have these other dominant offensive players and Edwards and Towns, but. 17 points on a hyper-efficient 7-9 from the field, zero turnovers for Mike Conley. I thought he was very, you know, understated impressive, which is actually pretty high praise because you don't need to notice him every that, that, every second. That's every uh, maybe maybe the adjectives of uh, Mike Conley's career. In fact. It very well could be. And I thought that another thing we've talked about over the, the when we've discussed the Wolves so far this season is Nas Reed, another strong offensive game. 16 points in 19 minutes on 6 and 9 shooting, which is ridiculously efficient, but also positive plus minus. And so I looked into it a little bit. Uh, Reed and Towns, positive plus 11.7 net rating during those minutes. It's uh, about 100 possessions with those guys on the floor. I don't think that the 98 defensive rating is sustainable, but their offense, I can I can understand being good in those minutes. It's been worse in the Reed-Gobert minutes. Um, they've been outscored negative two net rating roughly in that in 83 possessions. But opponents are shooting, this is wild, 48% on threes in that small sample and 52% at the rim. So one of those is unsustainably high. One of those is <laughs> likely unsustainably low. And there was one possession in this game that just drove me completely off the wall. And it was, um, I described it as Carl Anthony Towns' defense in a nutshell. Nas Reed was guarding, was kind of guarding a guy. I think he kind of switched out on the perimeter. And I, I can't remember for sure which nugget it was. It might have been Contavious Couple Pope. Beat him on the perimeter. Towns was guarding Zeke Naji towards the top of the key. Carl Anthony Towns takes a step and a half away from Najee, not to really do anything, but just like, I guess I should be closer. And then all it did was create the most open passing lane in the world to Najee, who takes and drills the the three from the top of the key. It's just like, it's it's helping without helping, but in some ways it's more infuriating when it's a guy who's A, center-sized, and B, like, should actually be helping. It's not. It's different when it's like Curry or some of these other smaller dudes where it's like, okay, they might not have the chops. You're like, Carl Anthony Towns could be doing better. He could have actually helped, and he didn't help, and then they just conceded that shot. One other quick Let's thing. Turn to oh, yeah. Oh, one yeah, other sorry. quick thing before we move on. I haven't heard anything about it, but there was a play. Jamal Murray went down. He 
went knee to knee with Carl Anthony Towns on both knees, a different contact, you know, so that I think it was like left to right and then right to left. I've almost never seen that before. It looked extremely painful. I hope he's okay. Like as somebody who has shitty knees, like I'm just like, oh no. Oh man, if, if you have shitty knees, I, I'd well, yeah. perish the thought of what the uh, adjective would apply to mine. Apocalyptic? Anyway. Let's, uh, let's turn to the Houston Rockets. Sure. The Rockets are one and three on the season. 27th in net rating, negative 7.5 for 100 possessions. 20th in offense, which is actually a little bit better than I expected, but, you know, we're dealing with small sample size here. 26th on defense is a pretty big disappointment in the early going. BPI projects them to win 30 games, which would be second to last in the West and gives them, the Rockets, a 1% chance of making the playoffs. That's not very high. No. Uh, So... Yeah, in terms of the numbers, you know, it's not like opponents are shooting the lights out uh, on threes. Uh, I mean, 20th on offense, I think, is actually pretty decent for them. And shooting 37% from three is totally respectable. Part of that has been through Dylan Brooks, who has 74% true shooting on 17% usage. Pretty sure that 17% usage would be the lowest of his career by amount. Maybe as a rookie, he was a little bit lower. Though I think his rookie year, they were tanking and he kind of got all he could eat down the, the end of that year. But that 74% true shooting would certainly be a massive career high as well. Big part of that is he's 13 to 23 from three. But I didn't think that he is as bad of a shooter as he has shown at times the last couple of years, particularly in last year's playoffs. I mean, if you think about the playoffs in 21, he was had a really nice series uh, against the Utah Jazz. And he's always was a scorer coming up more than a defender. And obviously, there are a lot of things that were wrong in Memphis. Uh, and you know, perhaps it was even his comments in the media where he's putting a lot of pressure on himself. Maybe it was just the people telling him not to shoot and he felt like he should not and i thought that he got blamed too much for his shot selection in memphis because if you looked at the numbers when he played with their three stars his usage was actually 13 percent. now he also needed to make shots during that period which he didn't necessarily and you know of course he poked the bear and uh the bear won in last year's playoffs and they felt like they had to reset the culture and then he he was a lot of control etc so i think it was good for him though just mentally to get out of memphis particularly to get that reset with team canada now all right he's not gonna keep shooting 50 percent from three i get that like well and it's 35 percent this year they'll take it when dylan brooks is a career 46 percent converter from two and he's at 57 percent so far this year that's something else to watch well well actually I, i do have something on that too because he's not taking a bunch of bad long twos he's taking on like less than 10 percent of his shots as twos outside of 15 feet so that helps you improve there and he's not taking much more at the rim he's not getting the line much more so a lot of it is that he's just shooting this really good percentage for three but that 17 percent usage you know again like I, I noted how in their starting lineup he's probably the fifth option and ironically despite ostensibly going to a worse team with less talent he is a lower in the pecking order player than he was uh, even uh, in Memphis but he uh, seems to not really be forcing it uh, too much but mentally uh, maybe it's just the change of cir- circumstance or whatever but he's actually like being efficient and hitting the shots that he's taking so he, he seems to be in a good headspace uh, all right I, I, if I what's the over under on what he's going to shoot from three this year I probably would still take the uh, over the under on 35 percent just because of what the history is but he clearly just looks more comfortable early on and part of the reason the usage was so high in Memphis was they had no choice but to throw in the ball and so he's not 
really like when they throw in the ball, he just takes an open three. Like they're not asking him to create. He doesn't feel like he has to create, but he also seems just just because he's on a different team. Maybe also quite frankly, just because he got paid a lot, right? Like he doesn't feel like he has to press and put up numbers. Uh, so w- whatever it is, we'll see how long this lasts. If they have other injuries, maybe he'll take more shots, take more bad shots. When he takes, won't go in. Like some of those things are going to happen to some degree or another. But as I've watched them, you know, you just haven't seen those like head scratching moments offensively that you saw on occasion and also in part because he's just not being able to, or not being asked to do that stuff definitely encouraging and we'll, and we'll as you mentioned see where things move from here what other rockets have stood out to you in the early going i mean this is an important evaluation year for their young guys with real potential and for me that would be jalen green and alpern shangun yeah jalen green just not great so far we'll, we'll focus in on him more but 27 percent usage 51 percent true shooting okay uh not really assisting at all either which was i saw that particularly in that warriors game that we watched where they you just like the defense is just not really reacting to him and you're kind of playing him straight up and he's got 51 percent true shooting he's not setting up his teammates what well, uh, and, and you know, alpern yeah go sorry ahead. quick interjection Something that's been a real disappointment for me, and I, I'll do more parsing later on in the season. Jalen Green, with his athleticism, I thought he could be a successful, like, inside the arc player, you know, get make good finishes around there. He shot, he converted 50% of his shots from two his rookie year, 47% last year, and then obviously only 137 minutes so far, 41% so far this year. That's why he's true shooting. He's actually done reasonably well from three. He's made 35% on five per 36. Like you can live with that, but you can't live with that when you're not making your twos and not like living at the line, which he's doing okay there, but he's not doing great. Yeah, like his three-point shooting through his career has actually been, you know, not amazing, but like that hasn't been why he struggled. You know, 2.1 assists for 36 minutes. Uh, that's part of why he's struggling. Uh, Alperin Shingun, though, 6.6 assists per 36 minutes in the early going. And I'll caution this again, uh, that at this point in time, we're giving you these top line numbers. Many of them we don't ex- expect, of course, to persist throughout the season. But I do think when you look at play style, and, sure. and this will be a, a theme throughout the first month or two of the season, both on the team and individual level of what numbers are stickier, what can what is maybe small sample size theater, what do we just not know enough about, whether it's real or not yet. Uh, but how you play, as opposed to how effectively you are playing, you know, those are, can be part and parcel. But in terms of, you know, shots going in, that sort of stuff, like anything related to that, particularly jumpers, is something that's going to be a just going to take a longer sample and even over multiple seasons in some cases with jump shots to really have much meaning but you know, if you're talking about assists you're talking about like what sort of play types a guy is using you know, rebounding turning the ball over like things like that are a little bit more kind of in the how than the how effective bucket and so you can take more away from those early and so shangun with that 6.6 uh, assists uh, per 36 that's really solid you know they're really running a lot of stuff through him it's working pretty well uh he's been pretty efficient taking a rare three but when he's open he's been making those and so yeah that's that's looked pretty good uh jabari smith quit checking on him shooting 30 percent from three still needs to have a uh, a better performance there but he has at least been more effective as a two-point shooter and but he just hasn't really been doing that much 58 percent from two though that that's better for him uh and sadly we'll have to do something now that you will do when a guy gets hurt and is going to be out for a while you want to kind of catch up on him with the men thompson of course uh, it's only four games 
uh, grade two ankle sprain. He, he was in transition. The ball got loose. He stepped on someone's foot going for a loose ball, went down, had to be helped off. And so, yeah, probably going to be another, you know, three weeks to a month type injury for a grade two ankle sprain. In terms of the how he's playing, wasn't the guy that I expected to see. Just, I thought, and this has really surprised me because at every level that I'd ever seen him, I thought he was like a pretty relentless offensive player. And he took half of his shots from three. He was two of 11 on those. Now, seven of those did come in the opener. He played a bunch of garbage time there and was negative 34. But yeah, I mean, you just don't want a Men Thompson. I don't care whether his three is looking better, which I mean, it's like slightly, but not great. You don't want him taking half of his shots as threes. He's been to the line eight times and 14 drives in 67 minutes, which is a, is a pretty low number. I just was expecting more there. Uh, expecting him to do more in the half court getting to the basket uh 68 overall of his shots are jumpers outside of 15 feet so that's just not the guy that i was expecting to see in terms of his aggressiveness only three field goal attempts on drives all season so we just haven't seen the level of aggression from him getting to the basket you know and we did see that more in preseason where he actually i think he was like had a game where he's one of seven at the rim and which that, that's actually okay to me like he's getting there he's athletic enough that he'll figure it out eventually but so this he's coming off the bench kind of trying to run the team they have more established mouths to feed on this squad like a, you understand maybe some of the reasons for that he's just trying to like not screw up and earn some time on a team that's trying to win just fit within a system i i get all that but i I wanted to see the guy who's just relentless pushing in transition, relentless uh, attacking the basket. And, you know, they haven't run a ton of pick and roll for him yet. And But we're not going to get to see him for a little bit now. And they're kind of down to it with the, really Aaron Holiday as the, their only backup guard uh, who can do much off the dribble. And uh, Aaron Holiday might not even fit that description, quite frankly. Speaking of teams that are shorthanded, the LA Clippers are three and two on the season, though because of their wins and losses, they are a ridiculous second in net rating, plus 12.9 per 100 possessions, and they're sixth on offense, fourth on defense. They're one of only, as we're recording this, three teams in the NBA that is top 10 in both offense and defense. And by the way, I'm cleaning the glass. The Boston Celtics are number one in both. Not saying that will continue for the whole season, but that's pretty dang impressive. And the game that I wanted to talk about um, for this was it was a very fun one. I, I watched it after the fact. I wish I'd been able to watch it during it, but we were at a different game that we will discuss later in the podcast. And the Clippers went out to an early lead fueled by Kawhi Leonard. He scored 18 points in the first, his highest scoring first quarter of his career. Um Mm. Was it? And they had that on the broadcast. I don't always listen to it, but they had it on the on the ticker, and I appreciated that. It was something I didn't know wouldn't wouldn't have probably thought to look up. And he was, I mean, Kawhi was awesome in the early going. Whoever they put on him was getting, you know, not necessarily put in the basket, but Kawhi is unperturbable getting to his spots. Ended up with thirty eight points, fifteen to twenty eight from the field. And just he's just such a wonderful player when he has it going. The big thread, though, that I had for the Clippers in this one, I mean, Kawhi was awesome. Paul George had a very good overall game. I'll talk about that in a beat. Um, I'm going to make an analogy, which is funny, like that. I think Nate's going to be surprised that I'm the one who does this. But I, I was thinking about when I do like a like especially a weight related workout. I have this phrase in the back of my head that moves to the front of my head at the very end, which <laughs> is DFIU, which is don't fuck it up basically for me. And if the idea is like, I've done well, I still need to do more. But the most important thing is to not make a mistake. You're getting tired. Sometimes you get sloppy. 
And so the idea is basically like you've done good work. All that you have to do is just handle handle your business. And I realized over the course of this game, in part because James Harden is not yet available, it looks like he'll probably play Monday against the Knicks as his opener. And then you also have all the guys they traded out who are unavailable, plus they're they're dealing with a couple absences, including notably Terrence Mann, who we don't have a return timeline on him yet. So it led to the Clippers starting two of the like most anti-DFIU players in the entire NBA in Russell Westbrook and Bones Highland. And it isn't necessarily always like on the offensive end. We talked about Russ's shot selection and some of the ways he can get tunnel vision. It's more those guys on defense where Westbrook had a play late in the game where he just like went for a no hope steal and caught and, and fouled the fouled the Lakers. And like Bones Highland gets lost on defense all the time. And it's like it's they're not supposed to play as big a role as they're playing right now, but it's just the idea of like, you have these two wonderful high level players who both had really good games overall. And it's not like they lost this game because of Russ and Bones Highland, but it's just the, the anachronism of it just really, I, I would say it tickled me and it frustrated me at the same time. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Uh, uh, now, Russ, of course, this was his first game back in the Lakers version of Staples Center. And yeah, it was a Russian line of 9 of 21 from the field, 3 of 6 from 3, interestingly. He actually hit a big 3 as the Clippers authored an improbable comeback to force overtime in the 4th, which we could probably talk about in a second. Yeah. And But he also had 5 fouls and, and 6 turnovers, uh, 8 assists, 11 rebounds, 4 of them offensive. So it was a very Russian well, and and they were out they were outscored in his minutes despite a whole lot of overlap with Leonard and George who were both positive. Yeah, and I thought Kawhi, you know, he had that amazing early start. It was the second night of a back-to-back. They'd beaten the Magic the previous night and he, he had the 38 points, 15-28, but wasn't able to be efficient late as it looked like the game had been completely salted away by the Lakers and then they blew it as we'll get to, but I I thought Kawhi looked exhausted yes by the, that's a he, great call i think and he managed to summon a little something right down the end uh and into the overtime but then uh, the lakers uh, outscored them pretty handily in the overtime once paul george fouled out but paul george had just an amazing game i mean it's tough to be plus 22 in a game that your team loses in, in overtime only played 37 minutes but he was 11 to 16 from the field six of nine from three 35 points uh, i think pg in particular is a guy who really punishes bad defense and the lakers for their part we'll talk about their aspect of this in a second they had to start cam rush uh not that torian prince would have helped but he warms up and then suffers some knee soreness and doesn't play and they tried to play max christie he really struggled uh one of seven from the field uh, but they had to use him on some of the wings you know he wasn't quite ready for prime time yet i still think there might be a a role for him to play so cam reddish was really the guy and i thought his defense was okay down the end i didn't watch much of the beginning of this game but i saw the the fourth quarter in overtime um well so, so yeah, what else I would from say, the clippers standpoint or do you want to oh, oh no i'll, I'll go i'll go clipper end? i'll go clipper standpoint first a couple things so the clippers even with their shorthanded nature they started westbrook and bones and norm powell came off the bench and played 35 minutes and it, it was an overtime game he played a lot late but something that i like about powell coming in, you need to time this right as Tyloo, is he's an aggressive driver and can be a successful one. What In those minutes where the starters are still on the floor, but they're kind of tired, he actually can be really good, not only for taking some of the scoring load away from your tired starters, but just like the the, the other team just being like, ah, like we have to like, this guy who has way more energy than us, like there are teams that in soccer that do this too, where they like bring in an energetic player, like at a point when the other team is tired and it can work well. I like that for Powell. He had a pretty good game overall. 
not perfect. He fouled out in in those 35 minutes, 12, 12 points on 14 shooting possessions. But like, I understand the theory of it, and I, and I see where they're going with it. And one of the fun, bizarre stretches of this game was when Darvin Ham in a kind of a backup unit, put Christian Wood on Russell Westbrook. I can't, I couldn't figure out whether it was a deliberate strategy or just kind of happened a couple of times in quick succession. I mean, you'd think it would be because he <laughs> saw the opposing team guard Russell Westbrook with their center all the time last year. One would think. And so what I love... Uh, although Wood is really... Wood is playing pretty much exclusively a power forward at this point, I think, for the Lakers. A lot of it. I mean, they played Wood with Hayes, and then he plays some with, with AD as well. Anthony Davis, by the way, 48 minutes in this game. We'll talk about him shortly. And yeah. what I what I found so amusing about the, that matchup is that Christian Wood is the right level of limited defensive, defensive player that Russell Westbrook thinks, yeah, I can take him. And especially there was this stretch where they were playing Russ in the first half with no Kawhi and no Paul George. And... Russell Westbrook, so he's aggressive, but he's not successful. And so he just keeps on taking the shots, keeps on banging against those walls. And and it was it's sort of the idea of like we, we talk about how sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a team is like their streaky player making a couple of shots early. And it was sort of the version of that just through a matchup. So I thought I thought that was pretty amusing. Um the other I mean, PJ Tucker played, played twenty one minutes, was mostly just competing on defense, being a body for LeBron. He in Philly style, only took one shot in 21 minutes, and he missed that, but committed four fouls. But having an, a, an adult in the room is very useful for them. He can be, at times, a very good DFIU player, uh, depending on what you have around him. So there will be a lot for Tai Lu to manage. And something else I thought of during this game, before we transition to the Lakers, is... I just brought up these minutes where Lou was playing Westbrook without, where Kawhi and Paul George were both on the bench. And it was a really bad stretch for them. That's a part of how Paul George was plus 22 in a game that went to overtime. And that, so, so in time, like you, the first thought would be, oh, well, that, if they have James Harden, like that will really, that'll raise things. He's so offensively competent. They can do all that. But it is hard. And we've seen this with the Warriors and a lot of other teams to manage a cogent rotation. When your most important backup is a starter. And so that will be a challenge for Tyloo to just, are you doing the early pull, actually being diligent about it? And Harden might grouse at that. He's like, you know, I usually play whatever, do stuff. But that is going to be a pivotal dynamic for the Clippers the rest of the season. Well, and particularly because it's been reported by Law Murray that it appears that the initial plan will be to start Westbrook and Harden together along with, of course, a center and PG and Kawhi. And yeah, like these guys have the stature, as we've said before, they're just like, they're going to just have to prove that it's going to not work. I mean, I, but it's just, it's just annoying, right? Like it's the theory of it is so bad. Well, and, and, that, and Nate, it's your criticism of Tyloo that like in a yeah, playoff yeah, series, that it, his first idea well, is well, bad and yeah. he adjusts off of it relatively well. Yeah. Now this is a, again, there are a lot of egos to manage here. Tyloo is probably one of the best to, in the NBA at doing that there's a reason he's like considered the most respected coach by players but i think you're just like the idea of james harden running pick and roll while you've got a center who's offensively challenged and russell westbrook on the floor along with Kawhi and pg it's just like it's it's remarkable like somehow they're going to have even less shooting on the floor than they did before the harden trade in a lot of these groups and then right you know if you want to put westbrook in and then maybe you put in pj tucker who's at least not going to stand under the rim as well and kind of let you know russ help you get some rim pressure and you know, maybe that could work at least because you don't have like 
you know, Navicha Zubats or Mason Plumley like standing in the lane. Uh, now his man might be standing in the lane, <laughs> but at, at least at least you got the defensive three second rule to to help you there some of the time. So yeah, th- it'll be fascinating to see how that turns out, and you know, interested to see how the Clippers look in their next game. Now Kawhi did play the back to back; he played a bunch of minutes, and you know they knew that they didn't have a, a game until today. Uh, how about from the Lakers? Stand? I mean, AD playing. Well, do do you want to do you want to do their yeah. stats before we forget? Yeah, we did the Clippers, right? Yes, we did. All right, the Lakers are three and two. They're playing against the Magic for the second time in six days right now <sighs> in Orlando. Uh, but they have not yet won on the road. But they have a twelve point nine net rating, sixth on offense, fourth on defense. Oh no, sorry, that was the Clippers. No, Excuse me. Uh, the Lakers have a 0.7 net rating, 14th in the NBA, 16th on offense, 9th on defense. They've had a pretty difficult schedule so far. And well, so something I want to start, I, I want to start. Hold, hold with. on a second. Oh, go ahead. Here, let, let me let me actually find their projection first. Yeah, they're projecting for 45 wins per BPI. A lot of these 45 win teams in the West uh, all projected for you know right right around that you know, fifth seed type of area, and they are given an 82 percent chance of the playoffs. 60% chance of making the top six. And yeah, you were saying you, you wanted to uh, move on to something about them. Well, about the game. So to me, yeah. one of the important elements early on was that, I mean, Kawhi's going crazy and the Lakers were able to maintain loose contact early. The Clippers eventually went up by, I think it was 15 or 17. Through a couple of big D'Angelo Russell threes, he ended up only making three in the game. But D'Angelo Russell... 7 of 12 from 2, 4 of 4 from the line. So he eventually had 27 points and 6 assists on 21 shooting possessions. That's a a pretty effective game for him. And one of the things we've been watching for the Lakers is, is LeBron and his usage. And generally speaking, Kevin Pelton had this useful thing that LeBron, he has like an early spike, like those big national games, because LeBron teams are always featured early on. And then he kind of takes more of a supporting role and then ramps it back up for the playoffs. This was a national TV game, a home game against their in-city rivals. And LeBron was very active. He did a lot of his best work in transition, as he has a lot of this year, but 35 points, 13 to 19 from the field, and got to the line 10 times, though he only made half of those and had a number of big shots in the eventual comeback and then lose lose the lead and then win. Yeah, and LeBron, he blew past this minutes limit thing again. It's the 30 minutes limit. They've only adhered to that in one game. And Lakers have, have had a, you would hope that they could have won more comfortably that game at home against Phoenix, who, uh, as we got to, is not playing too well recently. And, and Phoenix didn't have Beal or Booker in that game. And it took a crazy Laker comeback to get that done so they haven't really blown anybody out yet and if you're really going to be one of these teams that is there at the end that's going to be a top four seed like you need to get some of those that of course would help them keep lebron's minutes down now they have had the injury issues with Rui being out and and prince and but you know ad and lebron and reeves are all playing that's supposed to be their top three guys uh, and d'angelo russell doesn't miss any time either so you can't argue that they've been like too injured at all when their top four guys arguably haven't I guess Gabe Vincent has been out too, but uh, they still not enough to really have an excuse for like not playing that well. But hey, I mean, you can't complain. They beat the Clippers for the first time in like four years uh, at Staples. So that, that was impressive. And what did you make of Cam Reddish in this one, getting that start playing 37 minutes? I thought that there were some moments where he did a very good job. He had one where he just, he just took the ball from Paul George. And, and then that, I think that one led to a layup. Um, and then had another where 
Reddish stayed strong on a Kawhi drive and blocked him. That was Reddish's only block of the game. But he did lose players every now and then. I thought it was the closest to an actualized Reddish defensively that I can recall seeing. Not that I have an mm-hmm. encyclopedic memory of Cam Reddish defensive performances. But yeah, I thought he I thought he did a reasonable job there. You know, a little bit flawed offensively. But, well, maybe you do. <laughs> maybe you do have an encyclopedic memory of uh, at least his good defensive work. Sure. I, I, and so I, I thought he did he did fine. Um, the I you know where. Is this player in there more often? We're gonna have to see. Um, but yeah, I, I thought he, I thought he, I thought Larger held zone. Maybe that could have been like maybe you try Max Christie or something. But I thought Reddish did. He did better than I expected, which is to an, to an extent damning with faint praise. Before before we totally move on from the Clippers, I realized I forgot to mention this. This is a huge part of this game. They mentioned it. Um, the broadcast mentioned it towards the end. Kawhi Leonard played seventy four minutes on consecutive days. So it was you know played they played on Halloween night and this game was November first. That is stunning. And I mean, I guess that's a good sign for the Clippers, but sort of like you could talk about with KD. I'm not sure how much we're talking about the Suns. There's the good part of like, oh, I guess he's playing. He's physically good enough to do this, though. As you mentioned, he looked exhausted in the second, third and fourth quarters. But there's also the point of this isn't the part of it that matters for these guys. And they're older and you know they're going to have anything. And it's not only the like enhanced risk of injury, but also the like the fatigue of doing this throughout the year. So I'm sure both the Suns and the Clippers are saying, when we're full strength, we won't need these stars to play that many minutes, but it is still something to monitor. Yeah, I, and the the old phrase is, you, know, you can't win anything at this time of the season, but you can lose it. But that goes both ways. You can lose enough games that you're just not going to get a good seed and that you're probably drawing dead, at least as far as like winning a championship. Shout out Memphis. So low in the bracket. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, this is not their section yet, but we'll get there. And But then, of course, you can also lose it by like tiring the guy out uh, too much. But I think, you know, they've tried it the way of let's... Uh, put these guys in safety glass until later now and also worth noting that Kawhi is now two years off of the torn ACL he did play back-to-backs in the 2021 season although he didn't in the 20 season because he still was dealing with that quad tendinopathy so uh, he and the team seem to believe that maybe it is like safer and better uh, at this point for him to be doing this but they kind of tried it the other way and it didn't work so you might as well try it this way I guess maybe is the the thinking um yeah anything else uh, I guess oh one other thing that I thought was pretty interesting and this will adjust certainly you mentioned some of the combinations at one point the Clippers go with Russell Westbrook at the one Norm Powell at the two Kobe Brown at the three PJ Tucker at the four and Mason Plumley at the five that lineup ain't do too good no that was after they were up by like 15 in the first quarter and that was the the group that kind of let the Lakers uh start getting back into it the that quintet uh, was a negative seven over the very end of the first and beginning of the second quarter and uh I mean they, they don't have any other wings really coming off the bench available uh Brandon well, Boston we, is hurt but I tried to look at it is there something going on with Amir Coffey I went through his whole like the whole the whole page and couldn't find anything injury related for him no you would have thought that he could fit uh, in that group uh, to be sure but i guess they wanted to go uh, kobe brown but kobe brown to me is not a three okay a couple other things before we move on from the lakers um anthony davis i mentioned that he played 48 minutes 
they're the matchup of Davis and George, not that they defended each other. It is the reminder of these are two guys who at times their teams can just forget about them offensively. Like Paul George had 35 points, but then there were stretches of like five minutes where he never touched the ball and was on the floor, which is weird. And AD, it can be that way. He can be more central, but Davis, you know, of course can be a wonderful defensive player, had four blocks and a steal in this one and can be impactful in that respect. He played 48 minutes, which is very impressive though. You have the same concerns about durability for him. Somebody who has the, the, ability to pick other stuff up. And then another thing, Austin Reeves confidence, like he did not have a great first three quarters, didn't have a great start to the fourth quarter, but then had a fantastic overtime. He had six points and an assist, I believe in overtime, maybe even had a second assist. I just, I wrote it during my notes as it was happening and dropped Kawhi Leonard, you know, with a crossover and hit a shot late in the fourth quarter that put, I think that was what put the Lakers up nine. And we talk about it a lot that shooters have to have short memories, but like players like us, like us Reeves isn't quite a shooter. He his role is a little bit different, but you need to have the confidence that you're going to be able to do what you're on the floor to do because otherwise you're just useless. And I thought that he did a really nice job. Yeah, he'd had a rough start to the year. This was really kind of his first uh, stretch and he really gets their team going, gets the, the crowd going. I, I think more like it, the best version of the Lakers has Austin Reeves uh, very heavily involved and he hadn't been closing games at time also. So let's get to the Grizz. Depressing 0-6, 29th in the NBA with a negative 9.9 net rating. Do you want to guess who's 30th? I don't know the answer to this. I, I'm going to look it up, though. Oh, shit. I did. Um, I, I think that there's. I think it's an obvious answer. I'm going to guess. Yes, and I'm correct. The Wizards? Negative 13.1. That is correct. Anyone who's played the Celtics? But they have beaten Memphis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, I, the Pacers, that's pretty impressive. Actually, the Pacers lost a game by 55 and still only have a negative 1.1 net rating on the season. Sleeping uh, giant. But but anyway, the Grizz 30th on offense and only 18th on defense. I In some ways, the 18th on defense is a little more disturbing to me. They're projecting now for the 12th seed for BPI, 36 and 46, 14% chance at the playoffs. Uh, and Desmond Bain uh, has been playing as well as you could reasonably expect to, for him, particularly with some of their point guard troubles. They've had to run everything through him. They played him 42 minutes in that game uh, against uh, the Blazers that they lost last night. Jaron Jackson Jr. has kind of been up and down offensively like he's had some efficient moments I, I haven't felt like he's been like necessarily a generator of great stuff but he's, he's been able to be efficient in his offense you know is he do i think he's been effective as like what i would consider a number two option for these guys in terms of just like running stuff through him setting up other that's kind of more what you expect from like a number two option when you think of just like being able to run plays uh, for a guy so yeah he hasn't been that i don't know if it was reasonable to expect that but he's he's been playing fine like his offense hasn't been the problem it's just everyone else has sucked the grizzlies are shooting 32 percent from three outside of garbage time overall they're 25th and three point percentage i will note the portland trailblazers are last at 29 percent from three so far this year and yeah desmond bain 35 percent on 10 per 36 jaron jackson 39 on 6.4 per 36 notably zaire williams 36 percent on almost six per 36 and he's starting so he's like he's actually playing i I mean like he's i've seen some signs from him like it seems like maybe he's kind of back on track to like a decent rate of development because last year was such a lost year with him with uh, all the knee troubles but but you're still asking way too much for him to be one of your five best players at point in time for sure and some of the guys that are struggling from three luke Kennard, two of 17 Xavier Tillman, 4 of 17. David Roddy, 5 of 17. So Roddy's the best of those at 29%. Then Marcus Smart, 12 of 40. That's 30% for you, those of you scoring at home. 
And the big thing I wanted to look at, just kind of big picture, is how are the Xavier Tillman minutes going? And he came off the bench. They started David Roddy in that Blazers loss in the NBA Cup. Overall, a negative 10 net rating when Tillman's on the floor, 334 clean the glass possessions. And that's not, their defense hasn't been horrendous. It's uh, one basically a 111 defensive rating. It's that their offensive rating is hovering around a point per possession, 100.6. And the, as you would expect, the Tillman playing with Jaron Jackson minutes have gone better for them defensively. Uh, 104.5 there is, is strong. But the offense has been so abysmal that they still have a negative 6.7 net rating. Um, they're shooting 57% at the rim and 32% from floater range, which are both bottom 10 percentile in those minutes, which isn't great. And something that I thought was interesting, overall, the numbers when Tillman's on the floor and Jaron Jackson is not are, are poor. The defense hasn't been as good. Um, there is some opponent shooting stuff in there, but they've defensive rebounded pretty well. And considering that's Tillman at the five, David Roddy at the four. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I mean that's uh, we're, we're digging deep for impressive with, with these guys, but maybe that that's one thing we can point to. Um, anything else you wanted to hit on with either? Uh, a couple uh, just briefly, just briefly, uh, when Jaron Jackson's on the floor and Tillman is not, I didn't go all the way through like all of the splits here. Um, a one eighteen defensive rating. Um, negative 12 net rating, which is bad. Um, 225 possessions. That's actually one of the bigger samples that's out there. Um, and remarkably that group. So Jaron on Tillman off their 31st percentile or worse in all four defensive four factors and bottom 20th percentile in two of the four offensive ones. So like those lineups have just been pretty awful this year. And that was the, the big takeaway for me. Part of what I wanted to do with the Tillman stats is that in the Blazers game, it just didn't seem like Memphis was generating any advantages. And I I think that this is a group that, you know, that if they had that, it, it kind of reminds me to an extent of some of those, the more frustrating Orlando Magic teams, though they were more flawed defensively than offensively at times, where it's just like, if they had a best player, which they do, he's just suspended right now, all of this would make sense. But without that, it all falls apart. So how screwed are these guys? One shooting lock has been pretty rough. They don't give up a ton of corner threes. Uh, in fact, they are third in the NBA in it. Preventing corner threes is very kind of Mike Budenholzer-esque, uh, but they give up a ton of above the break threes, 29th in the NBA overall in opponent three-point attempt rate. And when your opponents are shooting 41% for three, that's a big, big problem. That is that is a big part of why their defense uh, has struggled is just opponents going wild on above the break threes. That is something that will surely normalize for them although they are still holding opponents to pretty poor shooting at the rim only 59 percent. so there are like jaron jackson isn't just like playing absolutely terribly uh he's been able to stay on the floor a little bit more too so far this season which is good because they just have they don't have the litany of replacements like a brandon clark or a kyle anderson that they've had for him in the past god how how many times are we going to just long for like the days of Kyle Anderson and DeAnthony Melton and Brandon Clark, though he got hurt, obviously it wasn't a transaction on this team. So I, th- there's at least a little bit of hope that their defense can come around a little bit. Uh, they haven't been as good in transition. I don't think either. Like, I think that's actually one place where Marcus Smart is well behind what Tyus Jones would give them in terms of running. And Clark was a big guy for their transition game too. So that they haven't been able to, and of course, Jot is massive there. So they haven't really been able to do much in transition. It's just very odd to me that they're not playing John Conchar at all. They were barely even playing him even when Kennard was out. And all right, you want to go with Roddy, 
he's he's more of a four anyway. You know, that's not necessarily contra, but he's contra is pretty rugged. Like he can play down or play up a little bit if needed. And other thing, rotation wise, Jake Laravia out of the rotation. They still haven't really given Kevin Lofton a chance, but their backup point guard minutes going to Jacob Gilliard. They also brought in Vince Williams Jr., who I can't say I know a ton about. He was their second round pick in 2022. I think he might still be on a two actually for 10 minutes uh, in, in the Portland game. He, he as played well. a fair amount for the hustle last year, but I didn't watch. Uh, the only time I watched the the hustle was I was watching, was it? Um, oh, they played the G League Ignite, so I actually saw a little bit of him there. Anyway, I think we can move on to the New Orleans Pelicans. Pelicans are a surprising, we'll talk about why, 4-1 and one overall this season. They are 15th in net rating, despite being 4-1, and one, uh, slightly above water, plus 0.2. 23rd in offense, 6th in defense, but BPI is positive on them. Uh, 43 wins, which would be 7th, they're firmly in that morass. 68% chance of making the playoffs. I will throw it to you, Mr. Duncan. Yeah, so they're four and one. That's really important. They banked four wins. We've seen this team get off to absolutely awful starts at times before, though notably not last year. They also have had just so many times where they've just gone totally in the tank for stretches during a, a season, as happened a year ago when Zion Williamson went down. And 23rd on offense, sixth on defense, 0.2 net rating, as you said. So you might think that okay, you know what's coming here. I'm going to say these guys are a paper tiger. They're not a four and one level of team. They haven't played like that so far. Now that doesn't mean that they can't continue this success by playing better with some of the talent that they have. They're getting Brandon Ingram back today uh, from uh, missing a couple games with the knee issue. Zion didn't play in, in their victory over Detroit on Thursday on a back-to-back. That's just a, a big win to get that with all the guys they have out, including Zion and Brandon Ingram to win that game on the second night of a back-to-back against Detroit. But here's why I think they're a total paper tiger though. Even even more so than that 0.2 net rating would indicate. CJ McCollum, Zion Williamson, and Brandon Ingram all have negative net ratings. Historically, they've played pretty well with Zion, no matter who's on the floor. Not this year. This year, they are actually negative 8.7 net rating with Zion on the floor, 7.5 net rating with him off the floor. Now, they're still positive in cleaning the glass because that includes a, a little bit of garbage time. So, and interestingly enough, the big difference there is much more on offense where they have a 98 offensive rating with Zion Williams on the floor. That Oof. is that is unheard of, right? Like this is a guy who at his best, it didn't matter who else was on there. He was making these guys into a top 10, almost top five offense, just completely on his own. And you know, they've defended pretty well when he's either on or off the floor, but their defense is as I was saying, a total paper tiger. So they're somehow six on defense. They're like, oh, watch out. You know, they're, they're not going to be six on defense again this year. They're, I think I already made this joke earlier, but it's continued still. Uh, I was like, yeah, they're not going to have the same opponent shooting luck on threes. Oh, no, opponents are shooting 28% on threes this year. That is by far the lowest in the league. In their four wins, opponents have shot 34%. That was Detroit. 21% OKC, 19% the Knicks. And those are both on like really high volumes. I think both the OKC and the Knicks were shot like 37 attempts. Uh, and then 28% Memphis. Now that they had a great comeback win against OKC in OKC on the first night of a back-to-back. So again, they deserve credit for sticking with it. 
and banking these wins, but they are just not going to continue to defend at this level. Now, I'll, I'll put it this way. This is like what I like to say about this. It's like, if they don't start playing better, they will regress. They could play better, but the way they have played so far will not sustain uh, for even, I would say, a winning record, not to mention like a, a high-level winning record. What we got here for Zion Williamson in uh, his top-line numbers in uh, the games that he has played, he did sit out that back-to-back, as I mentioned. Not fantastic and definitely different from what we've seen from him before. You know, still 22 points a game, seven rebounds, four assists. Like those numbers aren't really that different, but then you dig down below it and it's really striking. 53% true shooting, career average is 64, 30% usage. And as you, you compiled the stats on this, so where his shots are coming from is different and in a way that is small sample size concerning, but if the sample size gets larger, big concern. Yeah, now what I will caution before we get into this is that Zion historically, if you even look at the beginning of last season, and he'd missed the entire year, obviously, with the broken foot before that, it really took him probably about 10 games to really ramp up to the level where you know people were talking about him playing almost MVP level of basketball for a month and a half or so until he tears the hamstring at the beginning of January. So like, he's historically kind of not taken a while to get comfortable. Athletically, though, in addition to the fact that they're, they don't have a lot of shooting, they've just got a, a lot of backups in there with him as well. Uh, it doesn't, again, every time he misses time with the one of these injuries, he comes back. He just doesn't seem quite as explosive. I don't even know if it's like a weight thing necessarily, but he just, it, it's not as, as explosive. He's got five dunks in four games. I think a couple of those were some of those long alley-oops. But yeah, he's not getting those like explosive blow-bys in the half court nearly as much, uh, I think, as we've seen before. And so that's led to only 52% of his shots now being at the rim. And for a guy who's not very good at shooting anywhere other than at the rim, that's a little bit of a problem. He's shooting 33% upper paint. That's below his career norms by some, but he's not one of these guys. Like, he's got good touch, like, kind of maybe, like, within a foot or two of the charge circle. But, you know, he's not a guy who's been shooting floors and so many more of his shots are being pushed out. He's taking 40% of his shots now from that upper painted area and you know only hitting 30% of them. So uh, also taking a couple fewer free throw attempts per 36, only hitting 59% of those. That's a, a small enough sample. I'm not too concerned about it at the moment. And he's also just not getting as much in transition as he had. Now, some of that is the Jose Alvarado is a guy who really juices the pace. He's been out for them. You know, CJ's not a guy who's really going to push it too hard. Uh, oh, but maybe Zion could grab and go himself. Well, when you only get nine, 9.8% defensive rebounds mm. as a power forward who's huge and can jump. Yeah, it's going to be a little hard for you to grab and go. You got to you got to get the grab part of that down mm-hmm. first, which and that's like that's kind of disappointing. Like he's, maybe he's doing a little better job boxing out. Like do you you know what he so he plays next to is uh inhales a bunch of defensive rebounds and that's what he's out there to do, but I mean, come on man, you you just you got to get more defensive rebounds than that even just for their offense if that if not for their defense. Um, well, and, and Nate because so, yeah, and yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Go, go ahead with Zion if you have more stuff on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, the only thing I was going to have there too is and again talking about how the guy is playing perhaps rather than how effectively 9% of his possessions as a pick and roll ball handler this year, rather than 15%. Mm. Now, you know, they've got Matt Ryan, who's been playing reasonably well for them. He actually has the best high minute uh, net rating on the team, even though he was claimed on a two-way off of waivers and just jumped right into playing for them. They've got Jordan Hawkins, who's been playing some. I'm sure we'll dig into him at at a later point. So, you know, they do could run those J.J. Redick-style pick and rolls with Zion. But uh, to me, a lot of Zion's work, like his post-ups have been inefficient. He'll kind of post up 
15 feet away from the basket and try to rip through and get to the basket with that left hand. And that he hasn't been as effective uh, on those either, but more going to the sort of the isolation post up than pick and roll ball. And so, yeah, we haven't seen much of the, the point Zion. So yeah, these guys are like, again, fantastic that they've won four games they battled pretty well but they just they're gonna have to get some guys back or just the guys who are there are gonna have to play better for them to maintain this pace for sure the last thing i wanted to say on the pels since we've dwelled on it so much over the years when it went the other way plus 12.2 when Jonas valanciunas is on the floor negative 7.3 net rating when larry nance jr is on the floor hmm. i don't expect that to yeah, maintain. it is interesting i don't expect that to necessarily sustain but we we, all, we talk about it a lot so only fair to go to go the other way Oklahoma City Thunder, 3-3 three and three on the season, plus, positive net rating, plus 1.3 for possessions. 12th in offense, sorry, apologies, I'm, I got on the wrong line. Um, 10th in offense, 21st in defense. BPI projects them to finish with 39 wins, which would be 10th, the last play-in spot, and gives them a 32% chance of making the playoffs. We're not going to talk about the Thunder as much. I mean, they were part of the main game we talked about yesterday. We've talked a lot about them a lot over the course of the season. So I guess the question I'll have for you is, are there threads that we either need to flag right now or just kind of talk about a little more than we have so far? Yeah, well, I think just the putting together the math of their offense uh, has uh, some very fascinating threads, uh, as you said. And Chet Holmgren is one of those 78% true shooting. We're not talking 70% true shooting, 78% now. He's 13 of 23 from three, shooting about 4.6 for 36 minutes. That's a good number for a center. That's kind of Miles Turner sort of range. You know, it's not quite Chris Stapps Porzingis, but that's like, that's enough, right? We When we do our center rankings, we kind of talk about the center position is largely binary. There's either guys who take them or guys who don't at all. And the guys who take them are going to be 4.0 per 36 minutes or, or higher. Like that's enough where, okay, now the defense really needs to respect you out here. And we've seen guys, some of these centers that are guarding him kind of fly by him uh, on closeouts. He's been able to attack that. That's really been probably most of his offense. We haven't seen him in pick and roll as much. They've just been, they've been team drive, right? Shade Gildas Alexander, first in the NBA with 117 drives despite only playing five games. J-Dub is seventh with 81 in six games. Josh Giddy is 15th with 72 in six games. So they spread the floor. They don't run a ton of conventional pick and roll. They just want to try to create some confusion, let you take your man one-on-one, get in the lane and distribute from there. Uh, But Chet, again, for that usage, 78% true shooting, even if the three-point shooting goes down to something like the high 30s, which I think is about where he is going to be. He's been pretty good at the shooting the ball and he had nothing to do but stand around and shoot for a year. Uh, Lou Dort is 16 to 30 from three. Again, that's uh, probably not going to sustain. He hit his first nine shots on the way to 26 points yesterday, uh, midway through the third. Uh, oh, by the wait, can I, can, yeah. can I do another ridiculous Lou Dort stat? Oh, yeah, yeah. 72% true shooting on the season for Lou Dort. And one of the things I talked about Joe Masada before the year is that Lou Dort was going to have to kind of scale back the usage. And I think he's done that. He's managed to be mm-hmm. more efficient than he has been. And he hasn't been kind of hijacking the offense with these headlong drives that he's been doing. I think he's kind of fit into the role that he's needed to be in. Interestingly enough, uh, Casey Wallace is like 10% usage on the season, which for a guard is, that's just, I mean, absolutely infinitesimal. 
So the other guy that I really want to talk about, I mentioned he's uh, 15th in the NBA in drives. Josh Giddy, Shea, and J-Dub, their three main off-the-drill creators, are combined 14 to 51 from three. They are not making the off-the-bounce three really at all, and that's that makes their pick-and-roll game a little more difficult, although, again, like it's not hindering the drives. They're still getting into the paint. But Giddy, he's at 26% usage right now. 46% true shooting, 44% from two. And when you consider that Giddy is very often being guarded by someone who's smaller than him, almost invariably being guarded yeah. by someone who's smaller than him, he's being guarded by, in most lineups, the third best perimeter defender on the other team. Uh, and he's only taken nine free throw attempts in six games, despite 26% usage. His free throw rate is like 10%. It's awful. And he's also shooting poorly from three. He's 415 from three on the season not taking a ton not making them and 44 well, percent for two yeah that's what i was gonna say 45 percent from two taking 14 twos per 36 minutes that is is definitely a concern oh can i give a crazy case in wallace that he's shooting yeah. 70 75 percent on threes and 72 percent on twos so it's it, it hilariously small sample because case and wallace in total has taken 26 field goal attempts on the season despite playing 136 minutes so he has a 10 percent usage rate and 87 percent true shooting it's insane yeah i mean I, I would like to see him shoot more and but to, just to finish up on giddy sorry like he's got to find a way to get more fish uh he and when he has the size advantage it's just it's leading to a contested floater a, a lot and he's you know he can make that shot it's not like you don't see him take it and each time he takes it you're like oh god what a terrible shot but the problem is that like yeah each shot that he takes from floater range might not be a terrible shot but when that's all you're taking it's just really hard to make things add up i mean 26 percent usage and 46 percent true shooting like that'll get better he was in the low 50s last year but like that is killing your offense to shoot that much at that low of a percentage particularly when other guys are playing really well and you know maybe more of that usage maybe needs to go to holmgren or you know maybe you throw it in the chat in the post or, or run more pick and roll with him or more pick and pop with him and or uh j-dub can get more to like j-dub is 21 percent usage and like we talked about yesterday you know i'm not sure his how good his handle is to really ramp that up even further as like a, a true fulcrum of the offense at this point in time so you might argue particularly because jay was out for a game like giddy kind of needs to be doing this like all right and he is their best passer so i understand that aspect of it he isn't just unbelievable as a passer though a lot of that kind of comes as like a standstill guy out of the post or sideline out of bounds once when he's really on the move it's not as impressive but the thing is like giddy's going against smaller guys some of those floaters need to turn into layups they need to turn into the threat of a layup that then forces help and a pass or they need to turn into free throws right like he, sure. he needs to just get more of a power game against these small guys where he's putting guys in the goal forcing them to foul him as opposed to just i'm gonna work to a spot and and float something up like you're just like you got to shoot over 50 percent on those shots and there's just you know sorry he's not nicole Jokic. like maybe he'll get there but like that's re a really really tough way to make a living and if you have someone with 26 percent usage and 46 percent true shooting on your team like you can't be a great offense and i think these guys actually have a possibility of being a, a great offense if they can sort some of these things out and but giddy i think needs to either play better or play differently uh, if they're really going to reach uh, the level that they need to get to. Speaking of teams that need to play better to reach the level that they need to get to, the Phoenix Suns. The Suns, after their Oof. loss to the Philadelphia 76ers on Saturday morning afternoon, depending on your time zone, two and four. 
though they do still have a positive net rating plus 0.7, 14th on offense, 12th on defense, and uh, their their BPI, uh, Dan compiled it before that game. I think it takes a little bit to upload. Um, they're projected to finish 42 wins and ninth in the Western Conference and only a 59% chance of making the playoffs. And they played a set in Phoenix against yeah. the Suns. Well, quickly the on, on the Philly game, sure. we got to catch up on their injuries first. First set uh, again uh, on... Tuesday, which we'll talk about at the end of that game against the Spurs. Booker doesn't play. Comes back with the foot sprain Thursday. They get blown out. Wild come back. Tie it. Spurs end up winning. We're going to talk more about that. And then Booker, they take their road trip to the East Coast. And Devin Booker doesn't play. He's experienced more soreness in that foot. Like he rushed back. They shoot nine and 35 from three. It wasn't close in the end against the Sixers in the fourth quarter. And uh, KD, you know, he's really just on uh, the burden on him is just way too high right now. And you know, he's been fine, but I don't know. Like he hasn't looked like the guy who maybe was able to push the nets to like really great heights kind of by himself. Like he hasn't really been able to do that quite yet so their center issues like Yusuf Nurkic has really struggled the last few games he's four of 14 in 23 minutes like that's pretty incredible for your center to be four of 14 uh in a game and so so yeah they, they couldn't hit a three so yeah they're, they're in uh there's a troll they're two and four and but I mean the bigger thing is like Bradley Beal you know Frank Vogel seemed like kind of gruff about his potential return there's thought that maybe he was getting close last week that's not apparently the case and now Booker like is he gonna have to miss more time to get this foot sprain right like this is this is not what these guys needed and we haven't seen the big three together at all other than like one preseason game where they put up 46 points in the the first quarter hopefully we're we're not gonna look back on that as we do the 13 games that KD, Kyrie, oh, and Harden played together at the Nets. The one first quarter where these guys all played together. But yeah, this Beal thing is concerning. Like he clearly has been dealing with this for like a matter of weeks now, this back soreness. And it, he doesn't sound close right now. It's definitely a concern. And the difference between what New Orleans has done where they've been kind of shorthanded, though they've been shorthanded lower in their rotation than the, the Suns have, obviously. But to bank those wins, like you you get you you don't get get to keep those and, and everything else. Um, let's start with the end of Tuesday's wild game. Kevin Durant, oh my God. Kevin Durant has a nasty drive, put the Suns up five with a minute to go. And then... Well, well, this is after even the Suns are just blowing them out. Sure. Leading to two two idiots recording a podcast at halftime of that game to talk about how the Spurs uh, were you know, really looking terrible. And like Victor wasn't playing well. They weren't using him right. And, and uh, then the Spurs come back in that game and you know you thought that that was like kind of an aberration uh that that they came back but then of course (laughs) thursday happened as well but but so that's that's the background to this that the spurs have gotten back they tied it suns in theory have retaken control they have in theory retaken control up five with a minute to go then ball goes out of bounds Wembenyama gets it off the baseline out of bounds gets a pull up i think it was a like free throw line jumper if memory serves roughly to cut it to three and Suns come down. Yuta Watanabe gets a pretty clean look from a, on a corner three, and he's become so much better on those shots over time. Unfortunately, he misses this one. They're okay, you know, the, the Spurs have a chance, but they're still down three with a little bit more than a possession's worth of time to go, but they're going to work quickly because they're down three. Devin Vassell takes a tough three, but you're down three. You kind of need to take a tough one. And when Benyama gets the rebound, I think it was like six and a half seconds left. 
and goes for the putback. Now, you can make an argument there that it's the that you actually want to try to get the three because it's a scramble scramble thing, you're down three, but it is a 100% chance of it the giant human being catches it above the rim and just throws it down in. And then basically what you need is for the other team to make a mistake and boy howdy did the Suns do that. Well, well and it wasn't it wasn't just in this circumstance. It was like Kevin Durant was just like everything was running through him in, in the fourth quarter. Like he's 26 points, 12 and 19, seven assists. Like they're doubling him and just one pathway getting wide open threes most of the second half. But he had five turnovers. And even before the pathetic end of the game, like one of them was he just like stepped on the backcourt line for a backcourt violation when he was just trying to set things up. Uh, I mean, some of these Suns turnovers were so bad and like Trey Jones was pressuring up. And so this was, I was like, yeah, you know, I think the whole Suns need a point guard thing. That's a little overrated to me. They got Booker and Beal. Well, Booker and Beal are out <laughs> in this <laughs> game. So yes, you do actually need a point guard at that. Like KD can't necessarily be that. And, you know, just the number of terrible turnovers they had, like Grayson Allen just trying to drill the ball up and just losing it. Uh, and then you mentioned that like the Victor put back dunk. KD is guarding him. KD just stands at the free throw line and Victor Wembanyama. Yeah, maybe th- that seven five guy. Y- you didn't see him. <laughs> like you I mean, he is, he is on the like, thin exactly side, but so is KD. So maybe he didn't. Yeah. Uh, so, but but yeah, like KD. I mean, and KD is kind of prone to this. Uh, you know, I, I thought he got rid of some of these habits in Brooklyn when he was really locked in, but you know, I thought in this game he just did not take care of details. I mean, that one in some respects was an even bigger mistake than the end. But yeah, just the number of mistakes that the Suns made, just not getting into their offense, turning it over. Uh, you know, some some of the lineups from Frank Vogel as well, admittedly without their two good guards, were. Uh, really struggling in terms of uh you know there there was one lineup where they didn't have eric gordon or kd on the floor and you've got like grayson allen and jordan goodwin like trying to go right at victor Wembanyama. that was uh not that great i even would it i even wrote in my notes like maybe they should put bull bull out here just to get like <laughs> some kind of shot creation for these guys because they just like the only two guys on the team you could dribble are gordon and kd and they took them both out both those guys actually played pretty well so i, I mean the suns lost this game while shooting 18 of 39 from three. Yeah. And, and uh, so mean, it, it was truly incredible. It is. And let's get to the last possession. So what happens is Wembenyama gets the putback dunk, roughly six seconds left. And the Suns, I'll, I'll mention this once, and then I'll mention it at least three more times later. They had a timeout left. And oh, my God. Oh yeah, this is this is the the opposite of the thing you're always advocating for. How, by the way, this is the it, risk of it, it. I guess it, it is the risk of it. However, there is a way to mitigate that risk, which was a big mistake that Kevin Durant made. So to, to, to not be not be a wuss with the ball. Well, there's there's that, but so <laughs> so they so the Suns inbound it right away. Kevin Durant is running to the corner, but he's also a giant human being who's a wonderful free throw shooter, and so they give him the ball and. The the Spurs, basically, they have a man, I can't remember for the life of me who it was, between Durant and the rest of the court. As I mentioned, he's in the corner. And then what happens is Keldon Johnson was kind of, he was just kind of around on the play that led to the Wembenyama putback. And so he runs, and remember, so it's very limited time left. And so he kind of runs from behind Kevin Durant, reestablishes himself in position just because Durant's not all the way in the corner, he's just pretty close. Knocks the ball out of KD's hands, recovers yeah, KD the ball. KD turns right into him. Right into as him. As well. And just he, just, he just grabbed it out of his hands. KD looked at the ref, and I was like, man, what are you looking at the ref for? Like, they're, like maybe, A, maybe run after the guy because you just, like, you're up one and you just 
turned it over in the backcourt, but I was like, there was this is the cleanest steal I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, there was there was no I didn't even see hand to hand contact on it. And then Johnson no. gets the ball and does exactly what you should do in that circumstance, sprints straight to the rim and gets a gets a finish. And yeah, Josh Okogi reacted incredibly well, sure. goes vertical, and Johnson had a great finish around him. I thought it was a really good play by Okogi to get there, and Johnson was able to go through him and get the layup still, even and, so. And yeah, and so there is so so the argument that I've made for years is you can go for the inbound, and then you could call the timeout if it's not working. But in this case, the so San Antonio did something really right and Phoenix did something really wrong. The thing that San Antonio did right is when you have, so you don't have that much time left. So time is actually the biggest enemy that you have. It's not the Suns. And you should foul quickly unless you have an advantage that is that is stronger than that. And having the player stuck in the corner, you're, the time is running down, everything else. And I mean, Kelda Johnson, I don't know how much they realized like, he was right there. But Kevin Durant, not, I don't know if it was not realizing, not knowing that he had timeout, or not realizing the trouble he was in. Because there was a spot, spot of a couple of seconds where he could have just called the timeout. Or, I mean, honestly, if he just thrown the ball into the front court, they would have been fine too. Because, there, you know, enough time would have passed, the ball would have been in the air for a few, for like a second or whatever it would have been. But yeah, bad recognition. And so San Antonio goes in, that win pushes them to two and two, though now we can do their full stats. Spurs three and two on the season, still 21st in net rating, negative 4.6, um, 13th in offense, 27th in defense. We'll see how that shifts over the course of the year. Spurs are projected by BPI to finish last in the West with 27 wins and gives them a 0% chance of making the playoffs, which I think is a little bit too harsh for them, especially after this nice win that they had in Phoenix, the second one. And where I want to start with that, um, we only saw Josh Okogi play 12 minutes. He started the game. And the reason why was if you've watched Wembenyama and you and I saw him in person in that preseason game uh, in San Francisco, is playing a non-shooter low usage guy when the other team has Victor Wembenyama on the floor is catastrophic for your offense. Well, and that was the big thing to me of this game was that Victor, I was complaining to John that Victor was just not doing enough around the basket on either end. And I thought that he really changed up to, to do that. Now he still was two of seven from mid range, but nine of nine at the rim. And as you mentioned, it was really messing up the suns around the, the basket, right? Like uh, I think Devin Booker, the first play of the game, hard drive goes right in and Victor blocks him. And that was, that's just like the tone that needed to be set. And then the other thing that was so good, I mean, that nine of nine around the rim, right? I mean, they had some ridiculous dunks, but the Spurs were just finding him in the flow of the offense, in semi-transition, and just throwing it up to him. And we saw that kind of tease in the preseason somehow ridiculous that could be. And this guy, it's just his catch rating. We've never seen anything like this. Like <laughs> Nothing close. close. Like that's And probably not something that I was as focused on of just like where you can throw the ball that he will catch it. And then his coordination, like even if he's kind of like, you can kind of like tip it back in over his head or turn in the air. Like it, the, well, the coordination Nate, there, there was one, is insane. There was one in the third quarter where I, I think it was Trey Jones just basically threw the ball. It felt like it was straight up in the air. Wembenyama's not facing the basket, catches the ball at not the peak of his jump, but pretty, pretty reasonably close. And then just turns and throws it in, but never drops. It, it was a no dip, like a no dip put in. And it's just like, well, what the hell do you do there? And the answer is you can't let him get that position. But the 
elements that Wembenyama can can they can get to with him, and we're starting to see this a little bit more that just don't have counters within conventional basketball is beyond exciting for me because you like yeah the oh he could do stuff with the dribbling and the ball in his hands that's really fun and i mean when Benyama could be a more fun player than some of the other iterations but there is some truly unstoppable stuff here and i mean Tr- jones in particular oh, there were a couple good passes by other guys including deb Vassell. they're understanding now that the like we, we talk sometimes about like the math and the geometry of the floor is different with you know three boy shooting or anything else it's different with Victor Wembanyama because you could throw the ball in places where just no one else could touch it. It's kind of like that super tall tight end in football or other things, but it's more extreme than that because he could just it get is. that in, in other places. He's also a pretty quick jumper, especially for his size. So you don't have to lead him. It's not like, you know, like you're throwing up to Boban or something like that. Like he'll, you could throw it up and he'll probably get there, which is really exciting. And the idea of Wembenyama at the four, I was a little bit frustrated by it at times in the idea like, oh, you know, you maximize it. Like if you play a guy who could space the floor and everything else. But the idea that he can occupy basically the entire weak side when a team is playing somebody like Josh Okoge out there is something different. And it's working better. And the other thing is that, like I talked about with that play where he got the ball really high and just never dipped it, the only counter, there are two, but the big one is you can't play those players. Like it's it's something where you have to change what you want to do. And Phoenix, they're shorthanded right now, though Devin Booker did play in the second game. And as you mentioned, he's now dealing with another absence. But that is, it's a game breaker. It is something fundamentally different than what we have seen before. And I know, like, I think it was on TNT, like Shaq made a comparison to Bull Bull. No, this is a different universe of player, not only in terms of his size, but in terms of his capabilities, even as a teenager. 38 points, 15 of 26 from the field, three of six from three, five of six from the foul line. And, like that's, that's going to come too. like, he's going to yeah. be shooting 10 free throw attempts per game. I think when he's fully oh, formed. Can, can I make a note on that? Yeah. It was yeah. one of my favorite things from this entire game. There was a play where Wembenyama in the fourth quarter got a lefty dunk and he didn't draw the foul call. The exasperated look that Wembenyama gave the ref <laughs> was exactly Tim Duncan's. It was the same, like, Eyes wide open, mouth a little bit, mouth a little bit open, and like, and like, just like, like frustrated and quizzical. And it's like, yes, it was like, it was like somehow that's like mind melt has happened. I was delighted. Yeah, Pop's really been watching a lot of film uh, with Victor. Um, but yeah, like, and even at eight defensive rebounds, which is good. I think that's been one of the areas that, that I haven't liked as much uh, for him. So yeah, that thirty-eight points and ten rebounds in thirty-four minutes plus twenty-one game best, and just to get up twenty-six shots as a bit a rookie big in 34 minutes like that's just even to generate those shots is incredible and you know i think the the spurs are just finding ways like it's been more the case in the fourth quarter you know he really wasn't that great offensively in the sun's collapse game the the previous part of the set so the the, but they're kind of finding him more within the flow coming off the screens like it's still the like all right take six dribbles aspect like you know you can do that every once in a while the other thing that i thought really stood out to me in watching the film of this one was he got the center on him much more often Mm -hmm. defensively and i thought that that really helps him because then he has the quickness advantage and he just likes to face up a little bit more and whether it's working off the ball off of screens 
off the dribble, like uh, rolling to the basket a little bit more. They did more of that as well, able to get behind the defense at more of a conventional pick and roll coverage. Like, I, I think that's the more they can get him guarded by a center, the better shape uh, they're going to be in. And Nurkic and Andrew Eubanks couldn't mm-hmm. do anything with him in this game. Speaking of the Sun centers, one of the other storylines for me from the second of the Spurs sunset was Yusuf Nurkic playing 19 minutes and Drew Eubanks playing 27. And mm-hmm. Nurkic's limitations, both on, on defense and, and honestly, to an extent on offense, he actually was firing away from three. He took three in his 19 minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but remember what Yusuf Nurkic, I mean, he took a lot more last year, but generally what he has done. And it's a part of why I was so critical of their component in that, you know, Aiton from Nurkic-esque swap. I mean, Grace Allen did play 33 minutes for them in this game, and that that's useful. But Nurkic isn't good enough to me at the things that he needs to be dominant in in order to make sense with some of the Sens group. And that is a, it's a massive problem because it's actually harder, I would argue, to pivot off of Nurkic than it is off of Aiton because you don't have the potential, maybe it can work with us argument, even though, of course, Aiton costs a lot more money. Yeah, I think that was a part of the their thinking, in addition, by the way, to just have Grayson Allen's contract expires and to save sure. a bunch of money for the next couple of years in that move. But yeah, I think also to just get some smaller digestible salaries, whereas Aiton, I think, was just not, like there just weren't that many teams that are going to be interested in him. And if there were, it's like, now you've got to, especially you run into like some roster spot issues by trying to do, you know, a three for one trade or something like that also so uh you know i think a lot of this was financially focused i agree like Nurkic looked really good in that opener that we talked about against golden state hasn't really looked good since then i mentioned he was 414 today also of note kita bates diop who'd kind of been in witness protection program comes off the bench shoots it well in the second half as they're making their comeback and then he starts uh, today uh, mm-hmm. in the absence uh, of Devin Booker I mean it's amazing you you noted that Devin Booker didn't look right he still had 31 points and 13 assists and was really efficient yeah he, uh, but, he was I awful mean, in the yeah. first quarter and got and heated up later in the game but still. and then the Suns uh they I mean they shot 50 percent from three basically for a second consecutive game and they lost both that's a problem it's a problem and San Antonio I mean they they did look good during stretches of these games but one of the big concerns for me with Phoenix is that they're I mean, we've talked about how the Lakers game might be a concern for the Lakers is that they made San Antonio look really good. And I think the Spurs are better than we than we might have thought they were, but they're still not like world beaters or anything like that. So they, that first game really was a high watermark for them. And the Suns also housed the Jazz in Phoenix relatively early in the season. That was their other win. So, yes, I am I'm concerned about Phoenix. It's not, you know, in the big trouble area just yet. We'll hopefully Devin Booker's injury is short-lived and everything like that, but it is something you know, not only to lose some of these games, one of which was you were like you should have won, the other of which you were out completely outclassed in against an, what what you might think of as an inferior opponent. All right, last bit we'll talk about here is the Warriors and Kings who we saw play in person on Wednesday night. We'll save the Blazers. Want to talk more about Shaden Sharp and the Jazz, Walker Kessler and Jordan Clarkson. Probably save that for a future episode here. But this was. 102-101, Warriors win it at the buzzer through a Clay Thompson jumper from the foul line against Davion Mitchell. It went back and forth down the end. Both teams were just kind of scoring at will. Uh, I'll just kind of go through what the back and forth was. Sure. But so 
the Warriors don't call timeouts to take get the two for one despite having two timeouts with I think about 38 seconds left and Kings are trying to pressure up this is one of Draymond Green's favorite things the other team tries to pressure up on the inbounds to just kind of run almost a blind pig action but in the backcourt where okay you're trying to deny him we'll just throw the ball ahead and now you're behind the guy that you're trying to deny they hand it over Steph Curry comes downhill Malik Monk picks him up and Steph Curry with a ridiculous dribbling move gets to the dotted line floats up uh, a floater to go up one Kings come back down don't really have anything going to my Sabonis on a pick and pop from the top of the key just has to fire it late clock over a contest and banks it in to put the Kings back up one again and then the Warriors inbound the ball to Steph go no timeout not very fast though yeah yeah they don't take a timeout to advance it and I thought this actually kind of informed what took place where Steph went into isolation mode and hit the game winner on Dort they set a screen at half court or near half court actually I can't remember this whether the screen was set or not I thought Mike Brown I don't think it was off the cuff I don't think it was I haven't seen a highlight of it since I saw it live but I don't remember the screen so they put good pressure on and Demonis Sabonis just comes up I think Mike Brown was calling for the double team you could see Sabonis come immediately to half court and actually just kind of wave for another guy to come over and they force the ball out of Steph's hands to Draymond Green Steph tries to cut back door they do a great job of denying that and then Clay Thompson is on the opposite side Davion Mitchell kind of turned his head lost him Clay cuts the ball Mitchell is there Clay does the nice forearm shove off that's totally legal these days uh, and uh, going to his left Clay was like yeah if you get me going to my left uh, I'm pretty tough to stop I'm like yeah you probably should uh should know that he's going to go left in that situation Davion Mitchell but he didn't and Clay uh hits the jumper from the free throw line uh, to win it as uh, time expired pretty exciting great crowd in there as well those there's only been two Warriors home games this year but I, I thought the crowd was really good in both of them and what else do we have kind of from uh, well, well yeah i guess um, uh, we can just let's talk about kind of the strategy at the well, end of the game maybe i want i want to start with the king yeah. stats before we forget um sacramento oh yes please. Two, 2 and 2 yeah, on we didn't the season do golden state either we'll do them yeah. at the end uh 2 and 2 okay. on the season plus 2.1 net rating which is 12th for sacramento 11th in offense 16th in defense we'll keep an eye on that BPI projects them to finish with 43 wins, which would be seventh in the West, 65% chance of making the playoffs. And before we get into the end of the game, I want to actually talk about something bigger picture, um, which was a parallel between this game and the Oklahoma City one, where you brought up the ending, the parallel. Also, both Curry and Clay shots went in with 0.2 left, which is just something that amused me. Um, both games, the team in question, the Warriors opponent, doesn't have their dominant guard, De'Aaron Fox in this one, Shea in the other. And so they, oh, the Warriors have this big advantage. And the other team, in this case, Sacramento, did a really good job flowing through their offense without De'Aaron Fox. And some of that was we got a, a better revival of the Sabonis Herder chemistry. Um, they, it didn't necessarily produce a ton of points, but it was producing advantages. Herder had three assists. But then another one was Davion Mitchell. He only took nine shots from the field, but he scored 13 points. And I thought he had some he had some big moments, even if it wasn't his game. And, and I think that could take me back into the end of the game, too, because the Warriors go with uh, a Lilliputian closing lineup uh, <laughs> with the uh, Curry, Thompson, uh, and Chris Paul. And Gary Payton the second was out there for a little bit, I think, uh, at the end, because he was guarding Malik Monk, who, who again, uh, bedeviled Golden State, uh, getting to his right hand in particular. King shot it really well from three in the first uh, and then struggled uh, the rest of the game. 
think they started five of nine from three and then they finished six of 26. And and I thought that kind of saved the Warriors. Kings were getting every offensive rebound as well. They had 14 in the game that the there just wasn't and their wings were doing a lot of it. Like Monk had three offensive rebounds in this one. Keegan Murray. Uh, I thought as an aside, Keegan Murray ended up getting the Steph assignment. And re- recall that these teams had played a few days earlier in Sacramento and Steph Curry lit them up for 41 points. And they tried Davion Mitchell on Steph. They haven't gone that way. Remember last year's playoffs, it was Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis playing like over 20 minutes in a, in a game seven. He doesn't even have a job this year because they felt like they needed someone to guard Steph. Like Monk and Fox couldn't do it. Fox didn't play in this game. So they went with Keegan Murray. I thought Keegan Murray actually was solid. I tried to ask Mike Braun about it afterwards. This was kind of weird actually after the game. I don't know whether this was like, you know, they were really devastated after yet another loss to the Warriors in these circumstances. But Demonis Sabonis certainly sounded like he, he was uh, not in great spirits. But they brought out like three players and then Mike Brown almost an hour after the game. I can never remember a coach in any circumstance, like, you know, game lost game seven of the finals, whatever, like a coach coming out that late. Uh, so I don't know if he was like just having a bunch of conversations or, or what the story was, but I tried to ask, like, ask him a positive question. You usually get a good response about, I was like, yeah, you know, you went with all these other guys before Keegan Murray got the assignment. Like, why'd you go that way? How do you think he did? And he was kind of like, oh yeah, we're giving him more lines. So uh, the, I didn't, I was hoping Mike is usually like gives pretty good answers. So it, it, they didn't seem to be in too good a spirit, but Keegan Murray I thought did pretty well. Like Steph had one of those games with seven turnovers where he was just like, he just looked tired. Like, just throwing the ball over the gym you know it's like when he starts getting double teamed and like throwing a lob pass to someone who's 20 feet from the basket over the double team that's when you know he's gonna just be having one of those games and maybe he's feeling a little fatigued uh which you know he's allowed to have that at uh, age 35 but that i thought keegan murray like got his hand on some balls and, and actually like, stayed with Steph reasonably well of course they were doing some switching they had the bigs up etc but murray particularly because steph was like calling him up last year and just like roasting him in isolation steph was able to do that to him in this game which i thought was a nice nice step forward and, and keegan murray becoming a solid defender is just a big part of what is needed for the kings to take a, another step it is another king that i want to praise is kobe jones kobe jones second round pick yeah. out, of, out of xavier thought he really gave sacramento a boost playing 17 minutes in part because De'Aaron Fox was unavailable, so you need to go to somebody else in the rotation. I thought he competed on defense, had a steal, had a block, and, you know, didn't really make too many mistakes on offense. I thought he did a really nice job. Yeah, was able to stay under control. Like, he looked pretty poised offensively for, and I think he used an older rookie for a guy he's drafted in the 30s uh, by the Kings. Yeah, he, he's, he's on, like, he's a real 21 contract, now. not a two-way. Yeah, uh, so, but he's got pretty good size. He got more minutes than Chris Duarte in this game. So uh, I will admit we were there in person. uh, I completely forgot that Chris Duarte played. (laughs) He was there. He was 0 for 3, uh, had had three fouls, and I think they kind of just didn't go back to him after that. But yeah, Jones, he had some just like nice patient drives. And and I thought the Kings just were, did a really nice job, particularly down the end. Like this is another one of these games where I was like, man, like this Warriors, like during the meat of the game, like, you know, the Chris Paul, Steph thing working pretty good but just that combo even though chris paul is a lot better like like harrison barnes tried to post up chris paul chris paul stripped him right like he's way better than jordan Poole was for sure but and then particularly if they weren't going to close with andrew wiggins like gary payton the second plays a lot bigger but ideally you'd like to be able to have like a wiggins and a gary payton the second out there defensively and so the kings even without darren fox just managed to get the likes of herder or malik monk or 
just coming off of handoffs out of the corner, coming downhill against these smaller Warriors guards, finishing at the rim, getting offensive rebounds over them. And I was just like, man, like, I, and then of course, the other thing is you're not giving the ball to Chris Paul at the end. Like, that's the purpose of having it. It's the same thing as like how I used to talk about how Lou Williams, I mean, Chris Paul is a much better defensive player and, than Lou Williams, but how like Lou Williams shouldn't start for that or, or and shouldn't close for that Clippers team because he's just you have better defensive options you probably have better spot up shooting options Chris Paul is shooting awfully from three he hit one in this game finally but uh he's been or I think actually in the Houston game he's, he's only hit one three on the season like one out of 19 or something um so if you're not going to give the ball to Chris Paul then like there's not really much purpose in having it out there and you're not going to give the ball to Chris Paul you're going to do Steph and Draymond pick and roll that they've been doing for 10 years as Steve Kerr was adamantly noting after the OKC game that last year was the operation they're a good road team they're good at closing games all this so all right, you, you want to get to that. Uh, and so, I mean, Chris Paul is so invaluable for them as a like someone to just boost those non-Steph minutes and just like make them consistent throughout the game in a way that they basically have never been. But I still uh, like now, and when Andrew Wiggins starts playing better, maybe he can make that more of a conversation. I thought these last two games, he's played better offensively at least, although he didn't rebound again in this one. So yeah, this, this is just going to be something to watch because I, I'm, I think the Warriors are going to get in some close games. Maybe they could just outscore teams, but like that is that unit is so small, man. I mean, mm-hmm. even, and even Draymond Green, like he's not the rebounder that he used to be. I'd say that's one of the biggest drop-offs in his game as he's aged some. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good effort for the Kings. Uh, weren't able to, did Fox come back today, by the way, in this game they're playing? Uh, he did not. He did no. not return. There's talk that he could return over the weekend. Looks like he, he needed some more time there um, at Houston. Two right two quick things before we go. Um, a potential fifth closer for the Warriors is Dario Sharch, who's played really well. Six and nine from the field, three five from three in the Kings game. Capable enough defender, can space the four, makes good decisions. I think he's actually a better fit for some of those lineups than CP if you're going to have Peyton or Wiggins out there. We'll see on that. And then Sasha Pajenkov, he didn't have a great game from box score perspective because he missed all three of his three-pointers. But I thought that his cutting and everything, I thought he was really as advertised overall. Yeah, it's just, you could see him kind of bobble a couple of passes, get sped up a couple of times when he got the ball. Like that just happens to guys who are coming over for the first time, haven't really gone much against like NBA level of athleticism. Like I, I think, but he's he's going to shoot it by, it might even take him as much as a year. Uh, and he's in the rotation right now, just due to Trey Lyles being out with a calf issue. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I see what they wanted with him. Like he did have a couple of just like great cuts where he just showed up and places good fit with Sabonis offensively at least. And I thought Sabonis also played a little bit better uh with like some of that left-handed finishing against Looney and Draymond although I asked him like you know do you are you feeling a little more comfortable against them because he did struggle finishing inside after the game and he, he basically said like you know I still need to be better like they stripped me a few times like I gotta still be stronger uh he also just struggled at the free throw line too if he hadn't gotten seven to twelve they're, they're probably walking home with a win uh, although the the bank jumper for the uh Seth Partnow uh it was like laying in bed about to fall asleep and suddenly just like felt a disturbance in the forest somewhere uh, as that went in all right we're done here briefly warriors five and one uh plus 8.4 yes. net rating fifth in offense 12th in defense 50 percent 50 wins bpi second in the west uh 98 chance for the playoffs now we're done okay yeah those are good numbers for golden state they've had a really nice uh, particularly given that they started with seven of nine on the road to be four and oh on the road is really good uh, for them and they can kind of take it easy in a way that when they started three and seven last year they weren't able to do and they're behind the eight ball season like it, do- it getting off to a good start really does matter for a team like that okay hopefully you agree that the 15 and 60 i guess 13 and 120 or so uh is off to a good start this season blazers and jazz we will get to y'all but wanted to get this done and out to you right now. We'll talk soon.